You are listening to the Compliance Conversations podcast by Healthicity. If you work in the healthcare industry, you know how crucial compliance is to your bottom line, your reputation, and the success of your organization as a whole. If this is your first time listening, welcome. A transcript of every Compliance Conversations episode can be found at www.healthicity.com resources, along with a ton of other thought leadership materials. You can add us to your RSS feed and iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Now, let's get on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Compliance Conversations. My name is CJ Wolf. I'm with Healthicity. And today's guest is my good friend and colleague, Jay McVeigh. Welcome, Jay. Hey, CJ. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for joining. Uh, it's always good to talk to Jay. And um, you're going to learn a little bit about him. And I'm going to let him even introduce himself a little bit. Jay, tell us a little bit about how you ended up doing what you're doing, how long you've been doing it, you know, what your current role is and, and that kind of stuff. Sure. Um it's a uh, interesting path to where I am today, but uh, I'll give you the Sports Center edition. So, um, went to uh, college thinking that I was going to teach and coach, um, and uh, really quickly decided once I got into the school system that wasn't for me. So, I uh, started working with some physical therapists who introduced me to a neurologist. Started working in a neurologist office. Uh, had some experience in his office with uh, dealing with an infusion uh, suite and an infusion billing. I uh, got hired by the infusion company, um, then found my way over to MD Anderson with you uh, when you brought me on there. And um, so over the last 20 years, I've kind of just uh, kind of moved where the where where I was guided and directed and ended up here at uh, the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston as the uh, director of medical school billing compliance. Um, I have a great staff, uh, awesome team of auditors that uh, we uh, spend our days auditing physician medical records and providing education and teaching and training to docs uh, along billing compliance rules and regulations. Yeah, and you said 20 years. Don't tell me it's been that long. We're getting old. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been a minute, that's for sure. I, well, before I started this, uh, I think when I started with you, I had one kid. Uh, now I got one kid who's graduated in college and one who's about to graduate high school. So oh, it has been goodness. that long. <laughs> <laughs> well, and some things probably haven't changed that much. You know, as we we look back on some of these issues, it's like, oh, my goodness, is this still around? Um, but Jay has such a great experience and um, working at uh, UT Health Science Center in Houston. Jay, what tell us a little bit about the 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 size of the institution, like how many doctors, and I'm sure you have uh, like nurse practitioners and PAs, What what's kind of that audience that you're responsible for auditing and educating? Yeah, so that's uh, that's always a moving target around here. Um, as you know, you know, with uh, being a part of a medical school and, and residency programs and fellowship programs, right. um, the number of billing providers that we have is kind of always fluctuating. But um, roughly anywhere between 1,800 to 2,000 providers um, across the entire practice plan. Um, and that incor incorporates, you know, not only physicians, but nurse practitioners, PAs. Um, we also have a pretty extensive uh, psychology group that has social workers. And um, we've been bringing on dietitians in the last few years to start talking about, um, you know, billing for um, um, diabetes management and things like that. Um, we have uh, part of our organization, we um, run the Harris County Psychiatric Hospital. So we've got a pretty 
uh, extensive program over there of providers who provide inpatient services for psychiatric patients, as well as a big outpatient psychiatric service. Uh, we've got a school of dentistry. We've got a school of nursing. Um, we've got a school of public health. So just all kinds of different um, avenues and, and things that we get into from a compliance standpoint on, you know, with medical students as well. Um, so, you know, just, just a wide variety of different topics and subjects that uh, we deal with on a day in and day out basis. Yeah. And residents and fellows, and you probably have every medical specialty represented. Is there something that you don't have represented? As far as I know, <laughs> not, not at the moment. I mean, unless they create something, I mean, CJ, we've got subspecialties that I'm like, Oh, okay, exactly. that, that's new. <laughs> exactly. So, right. So there's yeah. been branches of, of, you know, whether it be neurosurgery and subspecializations there or, or you know, whatever, it's just, it's, it's, I'm learning new subspecialties all the time. Yeah, cool. Well, that is the one cool thing about what we do. We we meet people who are doing new things. And so it doesn't, it's not always stale. Um, and you get to learn new things. So that's cool. Well, thanks for that, that background. And um, maybe we could jump in and we could just talk about, I'll just give you a general question of, you know, what are some of the most common professional coding, billing, compliance questions you get from doctors? And I, in, when I say doctors, I include the nurse practitioners and all those other provider types that you mentioned. Yeah, um, unfortunately, I say the most common question is, why do I have to follow these rules? Um, <laughs> okay, so that that question is not changed over the last 20 years because we no. got it 20 years ago. <laughs> Yeah, no, um, that still continues to be number one, um, you know, and and really, you know, I think the biggest disconnect there is the docs feel like the rules don't really um, follow their workflows in their office and the way they see patients clinically. And, um, yeah. you know, I do explain to them quite often that you, you're exactly right. Um, these rules don't take into consideration a lot of the workflows and processes and things that you guys do with patients on a day in and day out basis. But well, these are still the rules we have to operate under and and we have to make our our clinics compliant with these rules and whatever we have to do to to do that operationally that's what we have to do and so um but outside of that cj i think you know the biggest um questions that we get across my group still are related to obviously the one thing that's never gone away and will never go away is enm coding and documentation um you know yeah. with the, especially with the recent changes that have come in 2021 to the outpatient rules and then what we see coming up uh, probably going to be in 2023 with the inpatient rules um you know the docs continue to ask questions um in regards to that and more you know they just kind of i think a lot of them felt kind of comfortable with the levels of service they were selecting under the old rules exactly and, and now we've got these new rules and you know am i in the right ballpark with the levels of service i'm selecting and the documentation and so forth and so on and so um that continues to be probably across our practice plan one of the biggest questions that we get um on a regular basis um you know, and then from there, it, it's, you know, how do I use my medical students effectively? How do I use uh, my nurse practitioners and PAs effectively? You know, what can I do, you know, to make sure that I'm billing at the appropriate levels and maximize my billing, but yet continue to have compliant documentation? So those are the types of questions that we get um, most frequently um, that we help, you know, help our doctors navigate those waters um, on this end. Yeah. So on E&M, let me kind of ask you a little bit more about that. So I can understand that, right? It's like 
procedures and the codes, you know, they're more or less straightforward. Of course, there's going to be some gray areas in some procedure codes, but E&M like just seems like this natural place where there's ambiguity sometimes. And um, do you think that these changes that we experienced in, you know, 2021 and then what we're going to be experience soon, you know, where we're shifting to kind of medical decision-making as the, as the driving uh, component. Do you think that's going to help? I, I, you know, I, I don't know if I could ask, has it helped already? Because it seems like you, what you just said, they were used to doing it one way and now it's changed. Um, do you think if we were to look like three, four or five years down the road, do you think these changes are going to help? Or do you think we're just going to kind of be doing more of the same? No, I actually, um, based on our, our audit results that we've had this year across our practice plan, I think it's already helped. Um, oh, good. And I think it's going to continue to to improve as, as they get more familiar with it. But, you know, in the past where when you had a new patient that required three of three key components and they wanted to build a level four or five and they missed one exam element, if you will, right. or one HPI element and it got downcoded, um, that frustration has gone away. Um, now what we've really been trying to focus on is getting them to understand, um, you know, the, the correct verbiage or making sure they're, they're, um, giving us enough detail in their medical decision-making portion of their note to support those higher levels that of course, every provider wants to be able to bill, but, um, you know, or at least the levels of service that are appropriate for that patient. Um, and so, I think across the board, we found that providers who used to be billing level threes are now feeling more comfortable in billing level fours um, because of the, the the way the rules have, have opened it up for them a little bit more with being able to document because most of them are doing some sort of medication management. Most of them right. are doing, you know, we do have a lot, especially in our area of social determinants of health and things like that that weren't really available to them before. Um, that are available to them now to help them kind of be able to select a level of service and and get it to a little bit higher maybe than what they did previously. So um, we've seen that improvement already. Um, we still go back to our physicians quite a bit on audit and say, hey, you know, um, especially with, as you probably are well aware of, with these EMRs and the templated yeah. medical records and the clicks the, the the quick clicks and and all of that you know a, a lot of times we're missing details in that assessment and plan portion of the note that really would make it clear what's going on with that patient and really drive that level of service even higher if possible you know uh, if they would give us just a little bit more detail so yeah are, do any any specific examples come to mind like i was presenting at a conference a couple months ago and i the way I presented it, I was trying to teach, it was a group of coders um, and I was trying to teach them um, examples from like how a doctor goes through what's called a differential diagnosis, right? So patients don't come in to your office and with a sign around their neck saying, I have um, uh, rheumatoid arthritis or I have lupus, right? They don't come around, come in with a sign around their neck. They come in with chief complaints and concerns. And then the doctor has to kind of do his, his or her detective work, eliminating certain things, you know, and narrowing it down. And so what's going on in their mind, it's kind of always been a challenge to get them to put that on paper. Are there any specific 
things that you can recall that that they're just not putting down or common things they're not putting down that it's like oh if they could do this one or two thing these one or two things that would really help them yeah um i guess under the the old rules you know in the 95 and 97 guidelines um when you talk about um exacerbation mild moderate or severe um, right. we kind of had those three different levels and now under the new rules it's either exacerbated or it's severely exacerbated. And so we've gone from three different levels to now we just got two. And so when we've met with providers before and we said, hey, you did say exacerbation, but that's really getting us to, to a level four. They're like, well, but if you look at these other things, this makes it severe exacerbation. Well, okay, uh-huh. if you could just cl- clearly state severe exacerbation, you eliminate all the guesswork from a coder or from an auditor on the back end. And, and just by adding that word to your documentation will add a lot of clarity to what's going on with this patient. And so gotcha. I think that's been one area that we've noticed on on our end um, to kind of help not only the providers, but again, everybody who picks up that note after it leaves that provider's hands to clearly know what's going on with that patient. Yeah, that's good. That's a good example. Well, thanks for that. Um, so the other thing I wanted to ask you, because and we did kind of refer to the fact that we've been doing this for years um, and a lot of good things come with those years of experience. What have you learned over the years as kind of best practice or maybe things to avoid? So either good things to do or things to make sure you don't do when you share coding audit results with physicians and providers. So um because you, your team educates too, right? And I'm sure you're going out and you're probably meeting with the with the tough cases. And so there's that communication piece. What have you learned that works and doesn't work when you share those audit results? Yeah. So yeah, we do we do a lot of education. Um, I would say we probably do as much education as we do auditing. Not only myself but my team. Um, um, because again, we're we're trying to make sure that everybody has the information that they need to do it correctly. Um, but you know, CJ, I think um, one of the things that I've I've really um, stressed to my team and learned um, and learned from you as well was simply that you don't go into a meeting with a provider and just tell them all the things that they're doing wrong. Um, you try to understand their perspective. You try to understand their clinic workflow. You try to understand what challenges they face working through their notes and their operational process, and then make suggestions of how they can do it differently or better to be compliant. Um, You can't just go in there and regurgitate rules to them and expect them to you know, listen and say, oh, yeah, I'll fix that. Um, right. They really have to, to, to kind of walk a mile in their shoes, if you will, and understand, you know, hey, they've got 30 patients coming in in the clinic and they've got a, a nurse practitioner in this room and a medical student in that room and a resident over here. And, and they're bouncing from room to room, working with different types of, of folks, um, you know, and then all of the operational challenges that come up with, hey, they get interrupted from this patient because they're getting a call from the hospital. And so how can you best, as, a, as an auditor and educator, um, understand their perspective, um, you know, and then apply the rules appropriately to their, to their situations or to their scenarios that they have in their clinic? Um, and I think 
when you do that or when we've done that, we've gotten a lot better feedback from physicians and they've been more willing to work with us as opposed to just going in and saying, hey, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, fix it. Um, right. That approach doesn't doesn't work with physicians because, you know, as you know, um, you're talking about some of the smartest people on the planet who've probably never failed anything in their life. And you go in and right. sit in front of them and tell them, hey, you just failed an audit. Um, well, obviously, their defenses go up really quick, <laughs> and that yeah. meeting's probably not going to go your way. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, we try to not use the word failed audit. Um, we try to tell them, and we don't even use the word audit. We tell them we do, we've done a review um, and that we've got some feedback for them um, yeah. or we've got some results for them. But we don't tell them that they failed their audit um, because automatically you get defensive doctor versus, uh, hey, I'm willing to listen and, and understand doctor. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like one of my mentors, when I first started doing this kind of work, um, she helped us um, go out and shadow doctors. I don't know if that's practical nowadays, but, you know, 20 some years ago, um, we would we would go and shadow them and, and just watch what, you know, half their day was right. We might not have time for a full day or maybe just do it for a couple hours and you get a sense of what they're going through. Just like you were talking about how oh, they get interrupted. They have a med student in that room, a resident in that room, and they're trying to keep all this stuff straight. And they're, you know, the burdens just keep piling up and kind of walking through and then just maybe finding one or two things that might help them. And then, you know, six months later, you find one or two more things that might help them. And um, is shadowing still practical? Is that something that can be done? Do you think that's helpful? Um, you know, post COVID, I would say, yes, we did a quite a bit of that. Um, we were, we would go to clinics, especially with the docs that were really struggling. Um, you know, um, providers that, you know, maybe we've educated a couple of times and they're still not getting it. Um, you know, just to, to extend that olive branch and to go show them we're willing to get in the weeds with them. Um, yeah, we would go to clinic and round with them. And, and, you know, I've, I've been to the hospitals with some and rounded with them in the clinic, in the hospital setting as well, if that was where they're challenge was. Um, but, you know, in the last couple of years, things have changed so much. Um, you know, we're now 100% virtual. Uh, my team and uh, I, I we, we really don't even have um, an office any longer except at home. And so, um, you know, I, I guess if we really needed to go to um, around with a physician and clinic, um, we could do so. Um, but in the last couple of years, you know, they've wanted obviously limit the number of people in clinics and, you know, gotcha. that sort of thing. So we really haven't been doing a, a lot of that recently. Um, but, you know, like I said, I, I think that's a great way to show the physicians that you're not just um, picking at them from behind a computer screen, that you're willing to right. go out and, and be there with them shoulder to shoulder and provide them real feedback, you know, real time um, right. And, right. and help them. You know, a, a lot of the times what we find is that the doctor's biggest hurdle is the EMR. Um, right. And, and, right. and unfortunately, you know, my team and I, we're not EMR experts, but if we do know that they're having issues with the EMR, we can reach out to those people who are the experts to get them to come help the providers. And and the docs are like, well, I never even thought to ask for that kind of help. And we're yeah. like, yeah, well, we've got people who can help you set up a dot phrase or set up a template or whatever that will help, yep. you know, make your life a little bit easier in the clinic and things like that. So, yep. um, so yeah, it helps when we go and we shadow with them around with them. And so that we can see where they're true, because oftentimes we find that their their challenges are not necessarily with the documentation. It's with all of the other things processes. that are going on around them. Yeah, the workflows, the processes and things like yeah. that. That's where their struggle is. 
Yeah. Well, that that's a that's a great a great point you make. Uh, with that, let, let's take a, a break. Uh, we're going to have a short message, and then we will come back and continue with with Jay McVeigh. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're craving content to help advance your career in compliance. You need great information and CEUs to keep your certifications. We're here to help. Healthicity offers webinars on tons of topics designed to inform and educate while keeping it interesting. And most of our webinars will earn you 1.2 CCB CEUs. We know you're busy. That's why our webinars work with your schedule. Attend live or watch it later. Grab a cup of coffee, a snack, whatever you need. Settle in and check out all our webinars at healthicity.com resources. Now let's hear the rest of this episode of Compliance Conversations. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, we were we were talking about uh, templates, and um, during the break, I was thinking that that's what I would I had done when I was sharing that other story about shadowing. I was with a he's an inter, he was an internist, and he specialized uh, basically in, in diabetics. And like eighty percent of his patients fit into one of three categories. And so you know you were talking about dot phrases and and those sorts of things. And with this doc. I said, well, let's, you know, if 80% of your patients are kind of in this grouping, you know, and, and he had then three subcategories, um, I said, well, let's sit down and help you design the template that that works for you. And so that's what we did. And to your point, I was not an expert in the EMR, but we were able to kind of make those connections with the people who were. I could help him with the language. And then we had to have somebody that helped us with with the EMR. That's a lot of legwork, um, but they started to respect us when they saw that we were there to help them solve problems instead of bringing them more problems, right? Or or the perception of oh, this is what's going on that's wrong. Uh, rather, they started to see us as partners and, and colleagues, and so it was just a it was a completely different approach. Um, and it's a battle. It's a battle of hearts, one person at a time. Uh, but with that one doc, fine, that worked well. And, and then the word kind of spreads. And, and then before I knew it, people were calling us saying, hey, I heard Dr. So-and-so, you helped him do you know, this template. And, and so you know, there's always going to be some people who just don't want to get involved. But, but kind of proving yourself with a couple uh, and having some successes, that can start to create momentum. Um, and, and so I liked what you were saying about, you know, kind of phrases and, and things in, in the EMR that, that can help, help the docs. Are you seeing that docs are doing a little bit more of that, creating templates and, um, you know, and those, those phrases that they commonly use? Oh yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, it's all about efficiency, right? Um, being efficient, right. having efficient, documentation, efficient tools uh, so that they can see more patients, so that they can get in the OR more, whatever it may be. Um, and so, yeah, they're absolutely um, embracing those efficiencies. But uh, as you mentioned, we've got to keep them compliant um, yeah. with those efficiencies. And so, That's and right. the other thing to your point too, CJ, you know, uh, oftentimes, 
you know, when you when when we are meeting with providers, they they hear compliance and and they think of us as the police. We're out to get yeah. them. We're <laughs> right. we're going to throw them in jail. And and while we do use those examples to show them the real world of what could happen to them if they're not compliant, um, you know, we try to to make sure that our docs know that we're not the police. We're not here. We're not after them. We're not we're not trying to get them in trouble with any of their bosses or anything like that. We're right. we're actually doing the complete opposite. We're here to protect them we're here to protect the organization um and and to provide them with guidance and a, a resource um that they can rely on that says hey these guys are here to help me not they're not here to go tattle my boss and tell them that i've been doing this wrong for you know the last three months or whatever right, it may be right, right and so that's a message that we preach very heavily here um, amongst my entire team. And when we meet with new providers and when we meet with new residents and fellows, um, the one thing we tell them is like, we're not the police. We, we're here to help you guys. We want you to see us as a resource. If you've got questions, come ask us, send us an email, whatever, however you need to communicate with us. Um, we're here to help you guys. And and on the other end of that spectrum, you know, I make sure that myself and my team is very responsive to providers. We don't yes. let emails lag for days and days or questions go unanswered. And even if we have to research a question, I still make sure that we respond to the providers and say, hey, that's a great question. Thanks for sending it over. I need to do some research and I'll get back with you. But at least they know you received it. At least they know you're looking into it and they're expecting your your response at some time. So yeah. um, I think those are really vital to any successful uh, compliance group is making sure your docs know that you're not there just to say, ah, I got you, you know, that you're yeah. there to, to really help them and be a resource for them. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, just good customer service skills as well, kind for of sure. prompt, prompt responses, those sorts of things. I, you know, I think in my experience, almost most, almost all the docs I worked with wanted to do it right, but I did run across every now and then somebody who was just like thumbing their nose at the rules. How, how do you deal with that? I think those are the exceptions, but I think they're out there. What do you do? Um, you know, do you have to escalate to their boss? Like what's the, when you know you've got an issue and it's like, this is not going away. Um, so those tough ones, what, what do you do with those? Yeah, um, like you, I, I don't really believe or feel that we have any providers that are just you know, doing things intentionally to defraud the government or anything like that. But we do have some that are, you know, uh, set in their ways who want to do it their way versus the right way or versus what the government tells them they need to do or whatever. And so those are the ones where, you know, yeah, we do, you know, we'll, we'll do everything within our power to educate, teach, train, show them, um, provide them with help before we have to elevate it or escalate it to a, to a higher level. But, um, you know, that's typically my next my next uh, step up is to get their their department chair involved um, in the conversation. Um, and again, maybe there's ways that the the department chair as a, a physician to physician can um, right. work with them versus, you know, a physician to a non-clinician like myself. Um, oftentimes providers will respond better to a physician versus you know, physician to physician education. Um you know, and then if it goes beyond that, you know, we've got other avenues, resources, um, executive compliance committee, chief compliance officer, things like that, that would could step in um, and make recommendations or have conversations with the provider. But luckily, you know, in our organization, we, we really haven't had to 
um, pull out those those big cards um, too terribly often. Um, most of the docs realize that um, we're there to help them, and um, you know, every now and then we do have to get the chair involved, and and that's typically you know when where where it stops is once the the department yeah. chairman is involved. But um, you know, we've had a, an occasion or two where um, you know we had one provider. I, I, I'll be honest with you, we we had so many um attempted and failed educations and he was unwilling to change that um the action was that he had to hire from his own um out of his own salary he had to hire his own coder to code everything for him um and and that was that was the only thing we could do to really get the impact across to him that this was important you know so Interesting. Yeah. Well, kind of with that, you know, and you've, you've already said this already that, you know, you're there to help them, that you're, you're trying to protect them from external forces. So the, my next question is, what are you seeing in those external forces? So maybe enforcement agencies or payers, either local or nationally, what, what are some of the higher risk things that are being emphasized from those enforcement agencies that, that you're aware of? Yeah. Um, you know, I see a lot. I, I read on the OIG website a lot um, with their enforcement actions, just to kind of make sure that, you know, I think the the president of our organization has always told me, keep us out of the, the newspaper headlines. And so exactly. <laughs> I go in and I read those newspaper headlines to see what's, what's making the newspaper headlines. And, you know, I think a lot of what I see right now is things that thank goodness haven't really applied to us the opioid stuff you know the over medications um you know the uh home health and and nursing home stuff you know all that kind of stuff is really not applicable to us so i kind of breathe a sigh of relief when i see you know eight of the ten most recent things on the oig website are related to those two items i'm like oh okay that's not us (laughs) um but you know cj is still kind of the old the old things keep bubbling up right you know um, and i just did a talk on incident two and shared split things um you know um as we again continue to hire more um, advanced care practitioners across the practice plan. Um, we have to go back and remind and refresh how you use those advanced care practitioners compliantly. Um, yep. What are the rules around the clinic versus in the hospital? Um, you know, uh, we had a big, um, we even actually had to engage an outside external audit because we had critical care providers that were using nurse practitioners prior to the change where you couldn't share split a, a critical care visit. Um, and they didn't really see our interpretation uh, the way we were interpreting the rules and were challenging us. So we went and grabbed an outside audit uh, company to come in and take a look at those critical care cases and see what their results were. So, yeah. you know, things like that that um, have kind of always been, you know, underlying things with the government. You know, as soon as we feel like we've got them squashed out or we've got them you know well trained or educated on those things you know a a year or so later they seem to bubble back up and pop up um yeah you know recently we've implemented a new emr here at our organization and with that comes kinds of growing pains with edits and claim edits and things like that and so something that we're dealing with now is the 25 modifier issue you know procedure And then an E&M in the same encounter on the same day. And, you know, do we stop and look at every one of them? Does the documentation meet significantly and separately identifiable? And, oh, by the way, CMS, what is significant and separately identifiable? Is it one paragraph? Is it one word? Is it a sentence? What are you looking for on your end? Um, And it's very subjective. And so, 
yep. you know, we've got uh, folks of different levels of education, experience, background, um, who, you know, a doctor may see it as significantly and separately identifiable from the procedure, but you hand it to a coder and they're like, no, that doesn't meet it. And you hand it to an auditor and they say, well, yeah, I think it does meet it. And then you send it to the payer <laughs> and the payer's like, well, we don't know. We don't even going to look at it. We're just going to deny it off the, you know, just to, right. to be denied because it it's a 25 modifier. So, um, you know, those type of things, you know, again, I haven't seen a lot from enforcement agencies around those things, but those are the things that kind of seem to continue to, you yeah. know, once you get them figured out or or you think you've got them figured out, um, a few weeks later down the road, they bubble up again in a different area or a different department or whatever. Um, but, you know, luckily, you know, there really haven't been any enforcement actions of recent that I've felt, oh my goodness, that's something we really uh, could get caught behind the eight ball on if we're not careful yeah. or whatever. So um, yeah. I think, you know, we, we've, um, we've transitioned a little bit more, well, completely away from, you know, we used to do the whole 10 case per provider review every year, make sure every right. doc has 10 cases, but you know, that's such a small sample of what they bill. It, you know, it kind of gives you that right. false sense of security. So we've really transitioned our audit program to more of a risk-based audit program uh, where we're really looking at specific risks and looking at more cases, you know, 150, 200 cases, and um, really seeing if we do have a, a, a broad problem or if it's just really not a problem at all, or if we need to do a more focused audit on one or two providers based on those results, or, or if it's a division or whatever. So we've really been able to, 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 change our audit profile a little bit more in the last few years to kind of address some of those risks, if you will, that the government throws out there or that enforcement agencies are reporting on. Um, yeah. And so we've, we've kind of been a little bit more nimble, if you will, with our audits. Um, if I right. see something, then we can go and run a quick audit on it and do a, you know, a quick spot check. And if it's not a problem, we move on. If it is a problem, okay, what do we got to do? How do we need to look at it at a bigger scope? Do, you know, do we need to provide education? What's, what's out there, you know? Yep. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, when you were talking about modifier 25, I mean, that's like one of these issues that has been around forever and it seems to still be around as you were talking about it. And I've seen a few, not not like a huge volume of enforcement, but there's still enforcement there where uh, I've seen, and a lot of the enforcement seems to be coming from like scheduled procedures. So like on Monday, the doctor scheduled the procedure for them to come back on Thursday in office to have the procedure done. And when they come back, was there really significant work done above and beyond that procedure that, you know, you'd kind of already made the decision to do it. And, you know, your procedure day was on Thursdays or something. And, and one thing that I saw recently in the OIG work plan was for dermatology. They're going to look at uh, dermatology because a lot of dermatology is just that, right? You're, you've got these in-office procedures um, and sometimes you're, you know, you're evaluating the lesion that day and making the decision and, and doing that. Um, and, and then sometimes you're having them come back. And so the OIG work plan item was specific to dermatology and modifier 25 because they, I can't remember the exact number, but they had done some sort of analysis of all claims from dermatologists. And it was a large percentage where modifier 25 was used. Now that may be appropriate um, just because there's a large percentage doesn't mean it's inappropriate, but uh, I thought that one, that one was kind of interesting. And then you, you started talking about modifier 25. And so the other one that I saw was when um, it was, um, it was a, a urology practice that got um, 
had some enforcement against them because they were they had scheduled procedures and then they were just billing E and M's plus those procedures and and it, these are probably more obvious examples, right? Like I think those gray area ones probably don't have as much enforcement around because you, you know it's just it's not a nice bright line. But I think the ones that have been enforced, there's been a pretty bright line where it's just like oh they're just coming in, they're getting the procedure done, they're going home, and there was not a separate E and M. So yeah, I, I don't know if there are certain specialties that you see that that might be at greater risk on some of those modifier issues or not. Well, you know, always our biggest risk or our, our biggest struggle um, is related to orthopedics and staged injections or not staged uh, gotcha. injections, you know, so, yeah, yeah. you know, there's different types of injections where they are going to come in and inject a knee and they're going to do it on a regular basis every two to three weeks. Um, and then there's other injections where they do an injection and it may work for, you know, several months to a year and then the patient shows back up and says hey that injection worked great right um but it's worn off and i think it's time for another one because i really don't want to have surgery you know and so right. um you know and you, when you meet with the docs on this they're like look i have to do an evaluation to determine whether i need to proceed with the injection or whether i need to right. recommend surgery and and when you try to explain to them as a compliance officer, yeah, I understand that, but you got to also remember that there's a component of that evaluation and management that's already built into the procedure. Right. And they were like, well, what is that? How much is that? And right. Exactly. It, <laughs> and when you go to the government, you go to CMS or, or your local intermediary and ask for guidance there, you don't get any clear guidance. It's exactly, it's, it's very subjective <laughs> and random as to what exactly. that is you know, is significant or identifiable, you know? So, yeah. um, you know, that's something, uh, another example I can think of would be, um, you know, annual wellness visits and an E&M on the same day, you know, okay. patients coming in for their annual wellness visit, but now when they're there, they also report the sick visit or they report something's going on that you, that the doc has to work up. So the way we've kind of explained it in those areas is, okay, let me carve out of your note, everything that is encompassed with the annual wellness visit. And then what do right. I have left to support that E&M? And if I've got enough to support that E&M, then we can build it. If not, we just build the annual wellness visit. Um, gotcha. You know, so. That's those are example. those are things that we've uh, been working on in the last few months with with those type of issues. Yeah. The other thing that I've seen um, uh, quite a bit of enforcement on recently has to do with medical necessity. It has to do with um, uh, urine drug testing. So, you know, as you know, there's there's kind of a kind of a screening urine drug test that you might do. And then there's a definitive. Sometimes that's called presumptive testing that leads to definitive testing. And I've seen three or four cases in the last couple of years. Uh, and there's probably more that I just haven't seen uh, that um, enforcement agencies are saying, look, that's not medically necessary for you to automatically jump to definitive drug testing or to be doing presumptive drug testing on every person every time they come in just because you know they are prescribed a pain medication um there, there needs to be some sort of indication as to why you think they might be abusing or something like that and i know it, it's a tough situation i'm not sure there's nice clear-cut answers but that's the other thing that i've seen uh, quite a bit of enforcement on and it's not really coding it's more of like a medical necessity issue right yeah Interesting. Yeah. So Jay, this has been great. And I just noticed the time. It's like the time just flies talking to you. It's awesome that you've got all this stuff in your brain and you're, we really thank you for, for taking the time to share it. I want to give you a moment to see if you have any other last minute thoughts or 
um, or comments that uh, you think might be helpful for everybody before we close it up? No, CJ, I, I really appreciate you uh, inviting me on and, and having me as a guest. Um, I, as always, enjoy speaking with you. And I know you and I can probably ramble on about this stuff for hours and hours um, uh, because we're both just nerdy coding people like that. But, exactly. um, um, you know, your mentorship, your your uh, collegialness, your, everything that you've done for me over the years, I really appreciate it. Um, and anytime I can help pay you back a little bit, I'm, I'm always willing to, to do what I can to help help you out. And so um, I, I appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast and to, to talk with you about these sorts of things. And, um, you know, really, I guess the, the only other thing I'd say to those out there listening is, is, is if you're a compliance auditor, compliance officer, and you've got to meet with those docs, just try to put yourself in their shoes for a little bit and, and approach it from a different angle. If you're having, you know, docs who are, are combative or who are just really kind of prickly and don't want to listen to you, um, you know, instead of going in with, with the negative, try to find the positive and see if you can really connect with them um, on a different level than just the compliance audit. And then, use that connection to roll into your compliance audit results and things like that. And I think you'll probably find that you'll have better results that way. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. Jay, appreciate your, your kind words and appreciate your, your participation. And um, thank you everybody for listening to uh, another episode of compliance conversations. Uh, stay safe and, and keep doing the good work. Compliance conversations is sponsored by Healthicity. Healthicity designs software and services that simplify compliance and auditing challenges that reduce your risk and save you money. Where others see complexity, we see simplicity. For more information, visit healthicity.com.